All right. Here we are, back again. Hello, my friends. Eric Eswire with the Summons from Gallifrey podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to talking and going through some of the classic episodes and stories of the British science fiction television series, Doctor Who. In the last episode, we covered Peter Davison's final story, The Caves of Androzani, and this week, we're going to be taking a look at Colin Baker's first story called The Twin Dilemma. All right, let's go back and pick things up near the start of season 21. Peter Davison originally communicated to the producer, John Nathan Turner, that he only wanted a two-year commitment on Doctor Who. He was initially very scared of being typecast in the role. However, in some more recent interviews with Davison, he mentioned changing his mind and wanting to talk about an extension with the production team. But by then, it was too late. JNT had already started the process of moving the Doctor Who machine towards Davison's regeneration by the end of season 21. As I mentioned in the last episode of this podcast, John Nathan Turner then decided to switch things up by introducing the new Doctor in the final story of season 21 rather than end the season with Caves of Androzani and beginning the following season with Colin Baker's first story. However, this seemed to be a decision made during the actual pre-production of season 21. Anthony Stephen, the writer commissioned for The Twin Dilemma, was originally expecting to deliver the script for the beginning of season 22. So he was caught off guard and wasn't prepared for the sudden push for a much earlier delivery date to make production for the end of season 21. There were a lot of issues with the script, a lot, that we'll cover later on, but ultimately Anthony Stephen had to step back from the story with script editor Eric Sayward taking over. Unfortunately, Colin Baker's Doctor would be a difficult one for many aspects of the production. It had a bit of a rocky start, which continued just about the entire way through his tenure. But more on that later. By moving the regeneration to the tail end of season 21, I think John Nathan Turner was trying something new as a way of creating a different hook for the viewers. Instead of something like, what will the regeneration look like? The question more became, what will the new Doctor do next? Speaking of the new Sixth Doctor, let's talk briefly about Colin Baker. And before anyone asks, there was absolutely zero relation to the Fourth Doctor, Tom Baker. Just one of those coincidences. Colin Baker actually appeared during one of Peter Davison's stories, portraying a Gallifreyan guard in a story called Ark of Infinity. Sometime around that period, there was then a wedding that John Nathan Turner and Colin Baker happened to both be at, and he seemed to impress JNT enough in order to be shortlisted shortly after that for becoming the next Doctor. The pairing of Perry, Nicola Bryant, with Colin Baker is a great one. They have some fantastic chemistry together. I feel a lot more chemistry between the two of them than when she was with Peter Davidson. But we'll pause on that thought and go back to the twin dilemma. As discussed in many interviews, subsequent interviews by Colin Baker, the intention and inspiration behind the new Sixth Doctor was to create a Doctor that was initially unlikable, but over time would reveal a kind-hearted soul. He was meant as a direct contrast to both Tom Baker's and Peter Davidson's version of the Time Lord. He also talked very in-depth about sticking around for a lot longer than even Tom Baker's seven years on the team. He was initially hoping that he would have another long run himself. JNT certainly tried to line things up for Colin Baker's opener to give it a great push. The series intro music sequence was updated for the Twin Dilemma, which always causes some excitement among the fans. Director Peter Moffat was assigned to the story, who had previously directed Tom Baker's State of Decay, Peter Davison's The Visitation, Mondrian Undead, and the 20th anniversary special The Five Doctors, definitely some of the more impressive Doctor Who stories. On paper, things were looking pretty darn good for the launch of Colin Baker's Doctor. So let's go through the synopsis. 
and see how it goes. All right. Episode one. We immediately get a new intro with Colin Baker's face now showing in the star sequence instead of Peter Davison's. We open up with two twins playing a kind of chess game. They've got the same haircut. They only have different colored clothes, but the pattern is the same between the two of them. Their names are Romulus and Remus. Their father comes into the room staring at them for a little while, just checking a clipboard. One of the twins asks for their mother, but the father tells him that she's occupied. The twins want to know if that just means she doesn't want to talk to them. In fact, we never see their mother, only their father. He's about to leave the house and was just saying goodbye. I don't know, heading off to work? Maybe that's what he was doing? The twins start whining about being abandoned, and basically we get the picture here in this little family dynamic that the twins are geniuses but consider their mother a fool, and maybe they just tolerate their father. The twins tell their father that they're going to play a game called Equations. The father freaks out, warning them that they have no idea the mathematical forces they're dealing with on a cosmic scale. The twins ridicule him for being so melodramatic. Back in the TARDIS, an energetic, newly regenerated doctor is gallivanting around the console room. It's definitely quite the opposite from every other newly regenerated story where they can barely move. And they're, you know, lying down in a hospital bed for most of, episode, most of episode one. He's quite jovial and asking Perry what she thinks about him. Perry is very confused, upset, and angry. She thinks he's terrible. He admits that the clothes aren't the greatest. But she corrects, corrects him to say that he is the one she's referring to. There's a bit of back and forth as the doctor explains that it's a metamorphosis for Gallifreyans, calling this regeneration a quote-unquote triumph. She rolls her eyes and grabs a mirror for the doctor to look at. Again, this is a very different take on a newly regenerated Time Lord. The doctor even totally remembers Perry right now, instead of having total, you know, memory amnesia. He takes a look at himself and is clearly impressed with every feature on his face, a face beaming with vast intelligence. He then begins to comment on his previous regeneration, glad that he's now himself again. Perry and the doctor argue for a bit. She called his previous regeneration sweet, which causes the doctor to roll his eyes and be glad that he's changed. So far, so good. Does feel like a weird take on a regeneration, but some of the dialogue here is pretty good between the Doctor and Perry, and you can see some of the chemistry coming out right away. Their timing between each other is pretty good. Don't worry, it's all going to change pretty soon. <laughs> they go further into the TARDIS into a closed change room. Lots of outfits here hanging everywhere. There's a lot of uh, articles of clothing from previous Doctors hanging around as kind of a um, a nod to the previous doctors before number six. They're still bickering a bit about his fifth persona, but as he mentions the word change, it triggers something. He starts shrinking into a corner of the room, moaning about the crushing boredom of eternity, and then he starts laughing maniacally. Perry is totally speechless, speechless through this whole scene, as are we. It's, it's pretty hard to comprehend what's going on. Back to the twins. They're sitting next to each other in these chairs, each with an iPad thing on their laps. They each turn to face a view screen and they start tapping squares on their iPads while solving puzzles on the screen in front of them. So far, so boring for the twins. Back on the TARDIS, the doctor is quote-unquote normal again and just going through clothes on the hanger. He's trying on a few jackets that are terrible for him, while trying to reassure Perry that he's going to be okay. A regeneration is a short but violent biological process in which every cell in his body is swiftly changed, renewed, and rearranged. She's a little concerned that he might relapse again, but he promises that even if it does happen, she's got nothing to fear. It'll become more and more... Uh, docile? More and more harmless. Maybe that's a better phrasing. More and more harmless with, with each relapse. 
He smiles as he spots his iconic multicolored quilt jacket. If you've never seen it, picture a quilt with dozens of differently colored shapes stitched together, together only as a jacket. It's incredibly gawky. I don't know what the right word is for it. Meanwhile, the twins are blitzing through their equations. They seem to be finished, and they turn around to face each other. Suddenly, there's a noise, and an old dude in a white robe materializes between them. They're not scared at all, but they, they're just curious who this dude is. He praises their equation skills and then introduces himself as Professor Edgeworth. There's a bit of back and forth. He lies by telling him he's there to see his, their father. The twins eventually aren't very comfortable anymore around Edgeworth and ask him to leave. He turns to praise each one, shaking their hand goodbye, but in the process he slaps some kind of green sticker on their wrists. Basically, it's a mechanism where he now can control them. The twins know what their names are, but they don't know where they are. They've got selective amnesia. Edgeworth holds up his arms, and the twins each grab one of them. He, Edgeworth twists a ring on one of his fingers, and the three of them dematerialize. Back on the TARDIS, the doctor is admiring his multicolored jacket. He spots a cat pin in the change room, and he pins it to his jacket lapel. As he's admiring himself, Perry is basically telling him, you're not serious. They bicker a little bit, and she eventually just calls what he's wearing, yuck. So, one of the dynamics of Perry and the doctor is that they argue, they tend to argue quite a lot. Um, bicker, argue, whatever the phrasing, phrasing is. Um, but it does it does bring out some really good chemistry between them. Um, it's not just totally uh, arguing for argument's sake. I think it's, it's uh, a way for each other to kind of communicate and blow off steam at the same time. Plus, get to know each other a little bit more. Anyways, we cut to a ship in space. We see two dudes waiting for Professor Edgeworth and the twins. One of them is skinny, the other one is overweight. It's easier just to say right up front that the skinny one is Edgeworth's friend and the fat one is constantly trying to get Edgeworth into trouble with Mestor. We'll meet Mestor later on. Ugh. The fat one is pacing around and wants to report Edgeworth's failure, but is interrupted by the arrival of Edgeworth with the twins. He leads the obeying twins to a room and locks them in. Edgeworth grabs a communicator and reports to Mestor that he has the twins. We don't see Mestor yet, just a red light envelop Edgeworth as the two of them are talking. Edgeworth tells Mestor that he gave the twins selective amnesia. Mestor wants to know how long they have before the twins are missed. Edgeworth admits it's going to be almost right away. Mestor doesn't want any trail leading back to their planet of Jaconda. He orders Edgeworth to take the twins to a safe house on Titan Three. The transmission ends and Edgeworth closes his eyes. I think we're supposed to see that Mestor has a telepathic connection or link with Edgeworth's mind while they communicate, which puts a lot of strain on Edgeworth. Back on the TARDIS, the doctor is back in the control room flicking switches and checking the TARDIS console when Perry comes into the room in a new green outfit, making a gesture like, ta-da! The doctor looks at her and just says, yuck. She sighs and finds out that they're heading to Vesta 95. He's trying to surprise Perry. He refers to it as a holiday planet where they can both get some R&R. &R. Suddenly he flips into madman mode again. He starts picking apart Perry's name, telling her what a Perry is. According to the doctor, a Perry in Persian fairy tales is a beautiful fairy. However, before it became good, it was evil. As he's talking, he's moving closer to Perry, almost getting right up in her face. He then calls her an alien spy and lunges at her throat, starting to choke her. He gets her on the floor, still choking her, when she manages to grab the same mirror the doctor used earlier on and forces the doctor to look at himself. He recoils in fear, disgust, and stops choking her while hiding his face. Meanwhile, the twins' father comes home to find the house empty. He bends down at the spot on the floor where Edgeworth beamed in 
and spots a bit of powder. He runs to make an emergency Skype call to the Special Incident Bureau. He identifies himself and reports the twins have been kidnapped, sometime within the past two hours. The operator dude takes all the details, including that the father had found a mineral called Zanium on the floor. The operator tells him that he'll tell the commander right away and they'll get back to him. The operator ends the Skype call and walks over to his commander reporting the kidnapping. He tells her that there was traces of Zanium found at the scene, which automatically somehow means that an extraterrestrial is responsible. The commander finds, finds out it's been within the past two hours, so she orders a full-scale search, making this the top priority. She orders all crews to their fighters and puts the operator guy in charge. It's really weird. Back on the TARDIS, the doctor recovers and is back to his old self again, asking Perry what happened. He doesn't remember anything. She tells him how he tried to kill her. Initially, he scoffs at her, but notices that she keeps her distance from him whenever he steps a little closer. The doctor looks away and starts getting worried that something is very wrong with the regeneration. He's degenerating? He immediately cancels the trip to Vesta 95. Since he's a threat to the entire universe, the only course of action is contemplation. He vows to become a hermit, with Perry acting as his disciple. The only place so desolate and perfect for them is an asteroid. Take a guess. Take a wild guess where that asteroid is. Yes, my friends, that asteroid is the same Titan III. Who would have thought? What are the odds? Back on Edgeworth's ship, Romulus has opened a panel and found some computer equipment. Remus asks him what he's trying to do, and Romulus tells him that they're prisoners, and maybe he can get a signal broadcasted from wherever they are, something that someone can use to track them down. By the way, throughout the story, I don't know which one is Romulus and which one is Remus, so when I say Romulus, it could actually be Remus and vice versa, but whatever, it doesn't matter. The dialogue is almost the same between them anyways. Anyways, while Romulus is tinkering with the computer, Remus is watching the door. Just outside, the skinny dude is watching their scanner and sees a small fighter ship approaching them. Edgeworth is taking a nap after the Mester Skype call. The fat dude takes one good look at him and then goes off to, che to check on the twins. The twins somehow hear that he's coming and look all innocent when he pokes his head in the door. The fat one doesn't say anything, but looks back and forth at them, and then leaves. Romulus tells Remus that he's rigged something, but he's not sure if it's going to work. Back at the commander's desk, she hits a button on the calculator in front of her to talk to Lang. Lang is the name of the operator dude who's now in, in a ship trying to find the twins. So, I don't know, he's been promoted from taking phone calls to being on the front line? I don't know, it, it was weird. Lang reports that he's found a freighter and tells her its registration number. The commander nods to another operator who starts punching the registration number into a computer to check it out. Lang also reports that the freighter is transmitting an irregular signal. Hmm. The operator checking into it reports that the freighter with that registration number was reported missing, believed destroyed eight months ago. Lang heard everything, and the commander orders them to find out what's going on. Lang is now trying to hail the freighter. The skinny dude is at the controls and pushes a few buttons. The freighter suddenly disappears. Lang reports back to the commander that the freighter has gone into warp drive, which is impossible as this specific class of freighter was never built with a warp drive. While Lang is talking, there's a loud buzzing of static and he's cut off. Back on the TARDIS, the Doctor proudly declares that they've landed on Titan III. He opens the view screen to show the outside is a desolate asteroid. Perry tries to talk him out of it, but he's persistent at becoming a hermit. He looks around and, and declares the TARDIS is too comfortable, so they'll need to look for something far more friendly for long periods of contemplation. He wants to find some kind of cave where the two of them can suffer together. Perry is a little outraged at this choice of words. Why am I supposed to suffer? Because you have been chosen, says the doctor. 
Again, I gotta admit, the story is kind of terrible, but the chemistry between them is really incredible. They have excellent timing on their lines. He wants to get started right away, noticing that the atmosphere is breathable for the two of them. But before they can leave, there's a big rumble and they get shaken around a bit. Now the doctor wants to investigate. We cut to the surface of Titan 3, and we spot this safe house that Mustor mentioned. It basically looks like a bump nestled into the side of the asteroid. A, a, a pyramid, a bump, it's whatever. It looks like a cone, an inverted cone. Inside, Edgeworth, the skinny dude, fat dude, and the twins materialize. The twins go to a couch thing nearby and melodramatically lie down on them as teenagers do. Edgeworth suddenly feels Mestor calling him, so he pulls out the communicator. Mestor calls him careless, telling him that he's destroyed. He's had to destroy five ships. Titan Three is already compromised, but he wants Edgeworth to wait a little longer to see what the Earth forces do next. We then cut to a throne room on the planet Jaconda. Ugh. Mestor is on the throne. He looks like a man-sized slug. The throne room guards are all the same race as the skinny and fat dude that are with Edgeworth. So they're not slugs. They're like humanoid, bird-looking people. They have kind of beak noses. Mestor orders Edgeworth to put the twins to work immediately on his great plan. They are tools, nothing more. Once they've served their use, Mestor wants them discarded. He reminds Edgeworth that he is also his tool. Before finishing the call, Mestor wants Edgeworth to make sure there's no survivors from the ships. I mean, how? If they entered warp drive, then what is he supposed to do? Back on the planet, or back on the asteroid, sorry, the Doctor and Perry come across burning shipwreckage near the TARDIS. They then discover the body of Lang, who they see barely breathing, and get him back into the TARDIS. Back on Earth, the commander gets an order to abandon the search, as they don't know how their ships were destroyed. In the TARDIS, Lang is rambling about his squadron and the children, then passes out. The Doctor and Perry get into yet another argument. Perry is standing up and pointing out that she's never seen someone love themselves so much for so little reason. As they're bickering, Lang springs up with his gun aimed at the Doctor, blaming him for the destruction of his whole squad. And there we get the cliffhanger for Episode 1. Episode 2 Perry calms down against the speechless Doctor and starts to beg with Lang to put down his gun. Lang refuses, blaming the Doctor for destroying his entire command. After a few moments, he passes out again. Perry takes Lang's laser gun from his hand, expressing sympathy or empathy for Lang. The Doctor is beside himself at nearly being executed and just can't believe that Perry is feeling so much compassion for Lang. Perry encourages the Doctor to save Lang's life, but the Doctor refuses. It's illogical to save a man who's intent on murdering him. Murdering him. Perry comes across an identity card or a badge and reads out the name Lieutenant Hugo Lang, Interplanetary Pursuit, A Squadron. Not A Squadron, but the letter A Squadron. This gets the doctor's interest, as he theorizes that he's a galactic, some kind of galactic policeman. Perry argues again to save him, as he clearly isn't the dangerous maniac that the doctor initially thought he was. She grabs Hugo's gun and asks the doctor to disarm it by removing the power pack, and then she'll hide it. The doctor grumbles but agrees to the plan, also telling Perry to fetch the medical kit. Now, not to be a killjoy, but this is Perry's literal third story, and I just find it very odd that she would know about a laser gun power pack from the future. Yeah, it's kind of picky, but... I don't know, it kind of just stands out. It's maybe something that the doctor should have been saying instead of her. Back in the safe house, Big and Little Dude report to Edgeworth that they found two dead bodies, but the rest must have disintegrated. 
Edgeworth wants them to go back outside and check on their own ship. The big dude complains about possible radiation poisoning, but they go back out. Edgeworth walks over to the twins, who are marking equations on a plastic board in front of them with permanent markers. He's not happy with their speed, but the twins complain that the manual work is very slow for them. Edgeworth tells them that since they tried to rig up the beacon system with, with the electronics, he can't trust them. They then both refuse to work and throw their pens down. Edgeworth tells them that he can force them if they push him. The twins calm down and try to find out what this whole situation is about. Edgeworth doesn't want to tell them the whole story, but he starts by describing to them a planet called Jaconda. Its new ruler is extremely ambitious, which requires the talents of the twins' genius for his plans. Suddenly, Mestor himself telepathically breaks into the conversation. He appears in the room in front of the twins. Picture, again, the man-sized slug. He tells them that he's not nearly as patient as Edgeworth. If the twins refuse to cooperate again, then Mestor will take their minds from their bodies and use them as he wishes. The twins are freaked out and they comply, picking the pens back up. Back in the TARDIS, the doctor is tending to Hugo, who's still unconscious. He asks Perry about the power pack and she tells him that she hid it in the wardrobe room. The doctor starts to gloat about the satisfaction of helping out a man in need. He tells Perry that Hugo should be awake in about an hour, which gives them the opportunity to make their plans. Perry's confused, but the doctor starts to monologue that his perception is sharpening, and he senses a massive danger threatening the universe. Perry rolls her eyes and confronts the doctor that the whole reason for them being on Titan III is because the doctor felt that he was the threat to the universe. The doctor waves it away, calling them words spoken during the sickness of transition. He rededicates himself to finding this evil and destroying it. But Perry, but him and Perry don't know where to start. The doctor senses that the clue they need is there on Titan III. He reminds himself and Perry that Hugo was briefly talking about some children. He then theorizes that an interplanetary policeman crashes on this desolate moon talking about children. He concludes that they must be abducted children, children of great importance kidnapped by aliens brought to Titan III and held for a king's ransom. Perry totally dismisses this theory, but the doctor's convinced that he's on the right track. Perry feels the moon is totally uninhabited and demonstrates her point by opening the TARDIS webcam. It slowly pans across the terrain outside until it reveals the safe house structure, which the doctor immediately jumps at, pointing to. He says that it's something which has no business being on an uninhabited asteroid. Perry can't argue with that. It's quite a distance from the TARDIS and the doctor wants to get started right away to take a look. The two of them leave Hugo and the TARDIS and they head towards the safe house. Back in the safe house, the twins have finished their equation work and Edgeworth prepares to transmit it back to Jaconda. The twins are exhausted and they go lie down. Back outside, the doctor and Perry are making their way towards the safe house with the doctor in the lead very loudly quoting some Longfellow, uh, basically some poetry but he's practically shouting it at the top of his voice. Perry is upset at the doctor for making so much noise, but he but tries to keep after him. They come across a rickety-looking vent. It must be part of the safe house structure. The doctor figures that that's a safer way to enter than the front door, so he removes the covering and the two of them head inside. And this is... Uh, wow. This is, calling, calling this event is an extremely generous description. It's like a tinfoil ball with a door. In their bedroom, the twins are telling each other how scared they feel. They've lost their memories and they're not happy about the equations they're solving and what Mestor will do with their work. Romulus tries to be brave for Remus and tells him that they can't stop now. They just have to press on. Edgeworth finishes transmitting the equations back to Mestor. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Perry are making their, their way through the vent system. 
It's, it's weird. It's obviously just a dark hallway. You can even make out a fire extinguisher hanging on one of the walls. It just look it's so bizarre. Anyways. Anyways. The doctor pauses and tells Perry to listen. She can make out the noise of some machinery. She starts to get pretty scared here, trying to convince the doctor that they should go back, as something worse could be at the other end of that machinery. Now, as an aside, this is a completely believable moment between the doctor and Perry, when you take into account the context that Perry just escaped from the dark caves of Androzani. The doctor starts to hear her fear, and he himself starts to lose all of his earlier bravado. He tells her that maybe she's right. It's not worth getting involved when he could end up in a pool of his own blood. <laughs> Before they can go back, Perry reminds the doctor that they're looking for the children. The doctor agrees, but then argues that children are incredible survivors. <laughs> Plus, they've only had the words of a delirious man to go from. This just winds up Perry even more. If that's what you think, then why are they even there? It's a really great scene. The dialogue between them is pretty funny. He counters that she should know his current state of mind and how chaotic it is. It's a funny exchange. They really are a great pairing together. The timing between them is just so good. The doctor tells her that they must leave at once back to the TARDIS to reassess the situation. As they're about to leave, the fat and skinny dude show up and point their guns at the two of them. The doctor gets really overdramatic here, getting on his knees and begging for his life. He's telling the two dudes that it's all Perry's fault. He even grabs a speechless Perry and tries to hide behind her. Back in the lab, or back in the other room, Mestor tells Edgeworth that the search for the children has been called off, so he orders them to return to Jaconda at once. Edgeworth agrees, but the mental drain of communicating with Mestor has left him exhausted. He goes into this revitalization chamber to recharge himself. The fat and skinny dude are being led by a protesting doctor through the tunnel system, heading back towards the safe house. Again, the doctor keeps blaming Perry for leading him off the straight and narrow, which just increases her anger towards him. They enter the safe house, and the doctor is immediately curious about the equipment lying around. Perry confronts him about his earlier cowardice, but he tells her that he's back in full control of himself. A confused Edgeworth tries to find out what's going on, especially since the fat and skinny dudes didn't find anyone earlier. The doctor starts telling him that they came to Titan Three of their own free will, as pilgrims searching for a cave in which to meditate. As he's talking to Edgeworth, he suddenly recognizes him and calls him Asmael, the ruler of Jaconda. Perry starts to smile a bit as the doctor's getting all excited, telling them stories of what the last time he encountered Asmael. Asmael doesn't immediately recognize the doctor, of course, but he feels the doctor's twin heartbeats, and we find out that the both of them are Time Lords. The doctor reminds him of their last meeting where they drank way too much and the doctor had to push Edgeworth into a fountain to sober him up. Edgeworth finally recognizes him as the doctor, but he's not nearly as happy as the doctor is. He wishes he could greet the doctor as his old friend, but the old days are gone forever. Before they could find out more, Perry interrupts the meeting to point out the twins standing near their room. The doctor's face lights up as he sees the children and declares that he was actually right all along. Back in the TARDIS, Hugo Lang wakes up, looking around in shock and amazement. He wanders around the console room, suddenly recalling the last few moments before his ship was attacked, then looks over and spots his blue plastic laser gun resting on the console. He grabs it and starts searching the room for the missing power pack. I mean, this gun looks really cheap. It looks like a plastic squirt gun, like a water gun. At any rate. Back in the safe house, it's clear that Edgeworth filled in a few bits of information, but is clearly hiding the primary motive for kidnapping the twins. The doctor tries to press him and assures him that even if they join forces, there's nothing they can accomplish. 
The fat dude is standing in the background listening to all this and sneaks away into the original room that they kept the twins in. There's a panel on the wall and he quickly punches in some buttons and then returns to the rest of the group. We can see on the panel that it's some kind of destruct sequence or bomb thing and starting to tick downwards. I'm surprised there's not a big label self-destruct or something like that on there. Edgeworth tells the doctor and Perry that while the doctor has his good intentions, he doesn't want to risk his people back on Chaconda. The doctor and Perry must remain as prisoners in the safe house. Back on the TARDIS, Hugo finds the wardrobe room, of course. A hundred rooms in the TARDIS, and this is the one he stumbles into. And for some reason, he decides to change his outfit. I mean, why not? No rhyme or reason, whatever. Edgeworth holds up an electric lock for the Doctor, explaining that there's ten million million combinations, and herds the Doctor and Perry into the corner of the room. Edgeworth begs the Doctor not to follow him, and tells him that once they use the transmat to leave, it will randomize itself. As they leave, Edgeworth concedes to the Doctor that he too remembers their last night together well. He joins the others, and they beam out. Perry is upset at this turn of events, but the doctor tells her it should only take him a few days to crack the lock combination. While Perry sits down, the doctor leaps over to the computer and gets started. Meanwhile, Hugo finds an aluminum foil-looking tunic with a belt and is admiring himself in a mirror. When he finally, er, not finally, when he feels something in his pocket. Yes, it's the power pack. What luck. And it is a terrible, terrible tunic. This is like a shiny silver, blue, blue picture like a blue-green, or blue-pink silver tinfoil thing. I don't know. It's, it, it's weird. Anyways, he slaps the power pack into his gun. Perry starts meandering through the small complex while the doctor is busy at the computer. She wanders into the room with the self-destruct panel and notices it right away. She interrupts an annoyed doctor and pulls him into the room to take a look. He tells her that they don't have a few days, they only have a few minutes. They have to find another exit, and fast. Hugo is trying to figure out how to open the TARDIS main doors without much luck. Back in the safe house, the doctor notices some of the equations the twins put together and yells out Eureka, and starts furiously typing them into a main computer. Outside in their ship, Edgeworth and the fat dude have finished preparations and begin taking off. The doctor finishes and tells Perry to step into Edgeworth's revitalization chamber. He's used some of the calculations by the twins to convert the revitalizer into a transporter that will send her to the TARDIS control room 10 seconds in the past. He takes Perry's watch in order to help him compensate for his own journey in order to arrive in the TARDIS at the same time as Perry. She hits the button and vanishes. The doctor is amazed at himself that it worked, then notices that her watch has stopped. He sighs, takes a guess, and hits the button himself while rubbing the cat pin on his jacket for good luck. Perry appears in the TARDIS control room and starts looking for the doctor. She ignores Hugo, who has his gun pointed at her, and she opens the viewer. Outside, the self-destruct thingy detonates, destroying the entire safe house. Perry starts to sob that she's lost the doctor. And that is the end of Cliffhanger 2. So before we start episode 3, just a little aside on the subject of cliffhangers, I think that the episodes that use anyone else other than the doctor as a subject of the cliffhanger is far more successful. I mean, when you're the lead of the program and it's still running in the present day, then your brain kind of reminds you that, of course, the doctor is never going to be harmed. Okay, maybe sometimes it's interesting to see how he'll get out of a situation, but a lot of that tension is gone. An effective cliffhanger definitely focuses on anything else in the program. A companion, a character in the current story, etc. And, since it's the first story of a newly regenerated doctor, we know that he's going to be okay. Anyways, after Perry sobs a bit, her and Hugo both see the doctor flicker in and out on the far side of the control room. 
Hugo is definitely confused and tries to grab Perry's arm, but she throws him off while calling out for the doctor. The doctor does materialize in the console room, but in a different time from Perry and Hugo. He blames Perry's watch, then flicks a few switches on the console. Poof! He shows up in the same time period as Hugo and a relieved Perry. There's a bit of the usual who are you questions from Hugo, and eventually everyone calms down and the doctor tells him that they're heading for Jaconda, which he guesses is where the twins will be. Meanwhile, on board the ship, the twins are chastising Edgeworth for leaving his friend and, the ga and that girl behind as prisoners, and also not telling them that his name is Asmael, not Edgeworth. Edgeworth is clearly mentally drained, rubbing his temples and trying to shut the twins up. The skinny dude calls him over to a screen, and they notice a blip on the edge of their radar, also heading towards Jaconda. The fat one proudly reveals to Edgeworth that he knows for a fact that Dr. and Perry won't survive, because he set the self-destruct sequence. Edgeworth is definitely unhappy with this news, as he didn't give the order. The fat one tells him that it's what Mestor would have wanted. Back on the TARDIS, both Perry and the Doctor aren't sure why Edgeworth was trying to kill them. The Doctor summarizes what they know so far. Asmael needs the geniuses of the twins, even crossing galaxies to find them. He's no longer the master of his planet, but he wants to save his people. He's also convinced that the Doctor cannot help him, which means that he must be facing some unimaginable disaster. Back on Jaconda, we're now in some kind of throne room. There's supposed to be a, a depiction of a slime trail from Mestor up to his throne chair, but in reality, it's just some kind of painted lines on the floor. Two dudes are hauling in another dude. He's been caught stealing vegetables from the royal hatchery. The maximum penalty is death by embolism, which Mestor gladly carries out with his mental powers. The poor dude screams and dies. In the background of this scene is a stuffed man-sized frog. It's really weird. It's also not clear if he was a creature that was punished and just being displayed, or if he's like a guard standing very still, but it just looks really weird. Mestor tells his court chamberlain dude that when Asmael arrives, he's to be escorted directly to his lab, along with the, with the earthlings. Outside on Jaconda, we see a barren wasteland. There's lots of dead trees with, within just dirt everywhere. The doctor proudly strides out of the TARDIS with his eyes closed and arms wide open, praising the beautiful Jaconda. Perry and Hugo both come out of the TARDIS, sickened by the planet. The doctor opens his eyes and he's shocked. He takes a few steps and come across, comes across a giant trail of slime. He explains that in tales of Jacondan mythology, there were rumors of man-sized gastropods. The legends must be real. Hugo scoffs at the idea. But the serious tone of the doctor frightens Perry, and the three of them head back into the TARDIS to think about their next move. Meanwhile, Edgeworth's ship lands, and the ground control operator dude tells Edgeworth to report to the palace. On the TARDIS, the doctor is succumbing to his own fear about the gastropods, unwilling to step outside again, but he theorizes that the most logical place for Edgeworth to take the twins is to the palace. He starts feeling sorry for himself again, and eventually Hugo pulls his gun on the doctor and orders him to take the TARDIS to the palace. With a huff, the doctor agrees. They land deep inside the palace in an underground tunnel. Hugo is heading out the door when the doctor changes his mind and offers help. Hugo is going to need every bit of it to find the twins. Perry convinces Hugo that the doctor could be very useful. Hugo reluctantly agrees and the three of them leave the TARDIS. Meanwhile, Edgeworth is taking the twins through the palace hallways to his laboratory. The twins are asking for answers, but Edgeworth isn't in the mood to give any. Just outside the TARDIS, the Doctor is pretty sure that the passage in front of them goes to the throne room. So off he goes, with the other two following. Back at Edgeworth's laboratory, Edgeworth shows the twins outside a window, a giant incubation room, where Mestor is housing hundreds of gastropod eggs. 
The Chamberlain is standing there during all this and finally welcomes the twins to Jaconda. He exits to head back to report to Mestor. Edgeworth tells the fat dude to leave, but he tells Edgeworth that he also has his orders and stays right where he is. Basically keeping an eye on Edgeworth. Back in the tunnels, the doctor finds some paintings on the on the wall which depict Jacon in history. He explains to Perry and Hugo that the Queen of Jaconda once offended the Sun God. The Sun God enacted a terrible revenge, sending a creature half humanoid, half slug. The offspring of these gastropods ravaged the planet, plunging it into an extreme famine that killed many of the people. When the Sun God saw what he had done, he sent a drought which destroyed the slugs. The people of Jaconda survived. That's the story that Asmael once told the doctor. So it seems that maybe one of these slug eggs survived after all. The doctor hears the noise and the three of them hide as a pair of gastropods walk or slither by. They all cover their noses as the stench of their slime trail hits them. Hugo takes a few steps and then realizes that he's stuck in the slime trail. The doctor warns him that it's likely harder than concrete. Hugo starts trying to use his laser gun on lower power on the slime to basically try and melt it away. Meanwhile, Mestor is meeting the twins in the laboratory. He's unimpressed, but presses Edgeworth for them to continue the work. Edgeworth needs another day of uninterrupted focus time. He tells Mestor to stop reading his mind and to send away the fat dude. Mestor does so, but tells him that he'll be watching. Mestor leaves, and the skinny dude reveals that he would treasure the friendship of Edgeworth, and they both shake hands, but Edgeworth it warns him that it could cost him his life. Edgeworth then explains to all of us what's going on. He points to a planetary chart of the Jaconan solar system. The sun is in the middle, with the first orbiting planet being Jaconda, with the two other planets in a much longer orbit of the sun. Basically, they're like outer rim worlds in this galaxy. Edgeworth wants to solve the problem of the famine on Jaconda by bringing into orbit these two outer rim planets. They would then develop the same atmospheric conditions as Jaconda and be bountiful with food and resources. With the twins' calculations, it could be achieved. Back in the palace underground, the doctor is getting increasingly impatient, waiting for Hugo, as he's trying to use the laser gun on the hardened slime around his feet. He starts another one of his tirades, really taking it out on poor Perry. He finds a way to blame her for this situation, getting more and more excited. Perry has had enough and fights him back, refusing to let herself be bullied. Hugo is trying to calm the doctor down, but it's not making a difference. The doctor storms off, aiming to help Jaconda and the twins on his own. A flustered Perry stays behind with Hugo. In the lab, Edgeworth is showing the twins the computer equipment that they'll need to feed their calculations into. The twins are still trying to argue with Edgeworth about his plan to save his people, calling it insane. Edgeworth won't hear of it and threatens to kill them if they don't help him. Outside, the doctor arrives at the door, talking to himself in anger, still upset from the slime trail, but now shifting his anger to Edgeworth. Through the door, he hears the twins arguing back, so the doctor slaps the button to open the lab door. Edgeworth greets him with a smile, but the doctor leaps across the lab and starts to choke him while calling him a murderer. The twins and the skinny dude help separate the two of them. The doctor finally snaps out of his mental relapse, while the two of them catch their breath. He apologizes, but demands to know why they tried to kill them. They all tell him that the fat dude was responsible. Edgeworth is curious how the doctor managed to escape, but the doctor tells him it doesn't matter. He wants to know what's going on. Meanwhile, Hugo's plan with the laser gun finally works, and he's able to free himself from the slime trail. With a sigh of relief, the two of them head off to find the doctor. They come through another part of the tunnel, and two guards attack them, knocking Hugo out. They leave him and grab a protesting Perry and head to the throne room. Speaking of the throne room, the fat dude is reporting everything to Mestor about the doctor and his companion on Titan 3. 
As the fat dude finishes his report to Mestar on how he himself killed the Time Lord and the Earth Girl, the guards bring Perry into the room. Mestar demands answers from the stammering fat dude. He orders the guards to go back and, and bring him Hugo. In the lab, Edgeworth has just finished explaining to the doctor the same plan that he told us earlier, asking for his opinion. The doctor echoes the same arguments as the twins. One tiny error in the planetary calculations, and it'll blow a, hole, a small hole in the universe. Suddenly the door opens and Hugo stumbles through, telling the doctor that they've captured Perry. As the doctor tries to leave the lab to rescue her, Skinny Dude grabs him, holding a gun to the doctor. Edgeworth can't risk Mestor finding out about his plan from the doctor, condemning his entire people. If necessary, Perry must die. The doctor yells out, No, Perry! And that's the end of episode 3. Episode 4 The fat dude is arguing for Mestor to kill Perry, but he wants to keep her alive. Mestor senses danger. The doctor is nervously pacing in his lab when the door opens and the fat dude with some guards enter. They spot the doctor and grab him, taking him back to the throne room. He's happy to see Perry, but is thrown down in front of Mestor. He stands up, offering to help Mestor with his planetary alignment plan. The twins have the mathematical knowledge, but the doctor has the practical experience to also guarantee success. Mestor consents that the doctor is blocking him from probing his mind, but he finds enough to know that the doctor is telling the truth. Back in the lab, the twins petition Edgeworth for their memories back. He agrees and removes the green circle stickers from their right wrists. They go back to work as Hugo recovers consciousness. The doctor and Perry are escorted back into the lab by the fat dude, with the doctor proudly declaring to Edgeworth that he's going to help him. They bully the fat dude until he leaves the room again with his guards. Back in the throne room, Mestor orders the Chamberlain to locate the doctor's TARDIS. The doctor and Edgeworth are going through the planetary plan again. Edgeworth explains that Mestor plans on stabilizing the orbit of each of the small planets around Jaconda by the help of time travel. Each planet will be put into a time zone one day behind Jaconda. But the doctor tells him that there's something very wrong with the whole idea. If the small planets remain their same size but brought to the same space as Jaconda, their orbit would decay and they would crash into the sun. The twins conclude it would cause an enormous explosion. Some elementary physics that even Edgeworth overlooked. Mestor obviously knows this would happen, so the big question is why. Meanwhile, the Chamberlain and some guards have found the Doctor's TARDIS. Obviously they try to get in, but obviously they can't. But Mestor does some mental thing, and the door to the TARDIS swings open. The group go inside. Back in the lab, the twins have finally finished all the calculations. The doctor is curious about the hatchery with the gastropod eggs, and so he ducks inside the room with Perry. The doctor picks up an egg and starts to wonder where its mucus layer is. The eggs are all just dry and rubbery, without anything to feed the young within. He gets a laser cutter from Edgeworth and tries to open one egg up. The group are surprised that the laser cutter can't penetrate the eggshell. And Perry starts to wonder how the young are supposed to break out. Suddenly there's some movement from the young within the egg, reacting to the heat of the laser cutter. Edgeworth and the doctor are starting to see where this is going, but nobody else does. The doctor then finds out from Edgeworth that there are dozens of hatcheries, each fully loaded with their own egg supply. The doctor realizes the extent of Mestor's plan. The eggs are all designed to react to something extremely hot, such as the heat of the sun. As each of the planets crash into the Jacondan sun, the eggs will be stimulated from the heat and spread throughout the universe, not just within the Jacondan solar system. The twins are dismayed to hear that their genius has been abused. Hugo asks the doctor if such a scheme is possible, and he admits that it's so simple it's mind-boggling. 
Back in the throne room, Mestor knows that the doctor knows everything. The group come back into the lab. The doctor sends Hugo, Perry, and the twins to head to the TARDIS while he and Edgeworth deal with Mestor. Edgeworth isn't so convinced that they can do anything. He's old and used up all of his regenerations while the doctor is still recovering from his own. Before they leave, the twins destroy their notes on the calculations but are able to keep them in their heads. They then finally realize that the skinny dude is dead. Mestor had taken remote control of him to monitor their entire conversation this whole time and has mentally burned out the skinny dude's brain. They spring into action. Hugo checks the corridor and gets ready to take the group back to the TARDIS while the doctor grabs a few vials of some chemicals and puts them in his coat. They all split up. While the fat dude is walking around with some guards, Mestor orders him to find and recover the twins but kill everyone else. Hugo, Perry, and the twins soon realize they've forgotten their way back to the TARDIS and they start to try different passageways. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Edgeworth stroll into the throne room to confront Mestor. With one hand behind his back holding a vial, you can tell that the Doctor is planning to throw it at Mestor. I mean, it's pretty obvious. He gives Mestor the speech about meddling in things he doesn't understand, blah blah blah, and punctuates it by throwing the vial at Mestor. There's a crackle of energy as the vial explodes harmlessly in the force field around Mestor, who just laughs. Hugo finally recognizes the tunnel that they're in and leads the group towards the TARDIS. The fat dude and his guards get the jump on Hugo and the group and there's a really small and quite pitiful firefight. Hugo takes out the two guards with the fat dude and disarms him. Back in the throne room, Mestor is reeling. The doctor theorizes that Mestor has gotten some bad news, such as not being able to recapture the twins. The doctor keeps badgering Mestor, who then finally has had enough of the doctor. It's not enough to kill him. He'll take over the doctor's mind and body. While the doctor laughs at this prospect, Mestor demonstrates on Edgeworth. He's able to quickly take over Edgeworth's mind, and he starts to talk using Edgeworth's mouth. While clearly struggling with this mental battle, Edgeworth's voice come back briefly, and he begs the doctor to help him. Mestor is weak as he's now trying to control too much with his will. The entire planet plus Edgeworth. The doctor wants to link his mind with Edgeworth's to help him, but Edgeworth refuses. Mestor will just mentally jump from Edgeworth into the doctor and take him over. Edgeworth tells him to destroy Mestor's body. The doctor reaches into his coat and pulls out one of the other flasks, throwing it at Mestor's body. This time it hits, and Mestor's carcass bubbles away and dies. Edgeworth starts dying, falling into the doctor's arms. He's forcing himself to regenerate, but since he's on his last one, he's definitely going to die. With his last breath, Edgeworth tells the doctor that Mestor is exercised. Mestor is finally destroyed. Back to the other group, the fat dude is holding his head while screaming in pain, which is confusing the heck out of Perry and the others. Hugo punches him in the stomach, and then helps him to the ground. Meanwhile, Perry asks the fat dude what's happening. The fat dude just tells her that Mestor is dead. Back in the throne room, Edgeworth has a few minutes left. The doctor calls him an old fool, and Asmael just chuckles. The doctor tells him that Esmail was the finest teacher he's ever had. Edgeworth starts fading away but tells the doctor that he too will always remember their last night by the fountain. As he's dying, he takes off an ugly ring and gives it to the doctor. I guess it's the Jaconan version of the Ring of Power? I don't know. He then closes his eyes and dies. The doctor says goodbye. Perry tells Hugo that the TARDIS door is open. He draws his gun while she grabs one from the ground and heads back to the throne room to find the doctor. The twins stay with Hugo. Hugo disarms the Chamberlain and his guards and orders them back outside the TARDIS. While they're outside, the Chamberlain tries to persuade Hugo that the two of them should leave in the confusion now that they have a spaceship, but Hugo just tells him to shut up. 
A worried Perry is slowly heading through the tunnels towards the throne room, when for no reason at all, the doctor takes her by surprise with his hand around her mouth, scaring the total crap out of her. I mean, there's literally no need for it. Anyways, they all make it back to the TARDIS. The Chamberlain tries to beg the doctor to take him away from the planet, but the doctor shoos him away. Hugo decides to stay to help the Jaconum people restore order. The doctor gives him Esmail's ring, which I guess makes him the new ruler? I don't know. And he heads off saying his goodbyes to Perry. The twins want to stay, but Perry shoes them back into the TARDIS. Inside the control room, Perry starts to criticize the doctor for his rude farewell to Hugo. He needs some lessons in manners that his previous self had. The doctor then reminds her that he's an alien with his own customs and values. He argues that she should give him a bit more time before judging his new regeneration. He cracks a little smile, which causes Perry to smile. And that's it. That's the end of the twin dilemma. Okay, as before, let's look at the viewer numbers. Episode 1 had 7.6 million. Episode 2 with 7.4 million. Episode 3 with 7.0 million. And episode 4 with 6.3 million viewers. I can't believe the numbers were as high as they were even by episode 2. Now don't get me wrong, the idea of a regeneration gone wrong is an interesting one, and I could see why the production team would choose to try to explore this aspect after so many seasons of the doctor, the doctor going through regenerations. I have to be a bit careful here because most times a mistake is so easy and obvious to ev anyone who looks at them in hindsight, right? I mean, we all do that. So kind of like the magma creature from the Caves of Androzani. Maybe at first it seemed like a good idea in the planning phases of the story, but then it just turned into yuck during execution. Sometimes a mistake could be that we're trying to view a story in a totally different context than when the choices behind it were made. As a fan, we never get a glimpse of what's going on behind the scenes or what constraints the production team is working under. There have been several seasons of Doctor Who stories affected by various union worker strikes, for example, which have affected a lot of production value, a lot of story writing, etc. But sometimes, a mistake should be an incredibly obvious one during pre-production, and this is the category that the Twin Dilemma falls into. It's basically the, tw the Doctor Who equivalent of The Walking Dead killing off Carl Grimes. It's the Doctor Who equivalent of the Game of Thrones killing off Daenerys. Right out of the gate, physically attacking a companion, especially a female one, was just way too much in my opinion. Which a lot of fans agreed with, by the way. And I feel that just kind of sets the mood for the rest of the story. They dig a really deep pit to crawl out of by the end of episode 4. In various interviews with Peter Moffat and Colin Baker himself, the idea the production team had was introducing a multi-year reveal of Colin Baker's doctor as a kind-hearted soul. By trying to strike a harsh contrast to Peter Davison's doctor, I feel that the pendulum just went too far in the other direction. I mean, as a fan, why would I want to watch a show with an extremely unlikable lead character? It was a very poor and awkward choice as a story, which just seemed to unravel the further we got into it. And the title itself, The Twin Dilemma, could be one of several things in the story. The obvious one is of the twins who are presented with mathematical challenges to conquer, but they don't really feel that they're in any kind of dilemma. The mathematics are a cakewalk for them at every turn. I mean, that's how they, they're, they act and that's how they're presented. They don't even break a sweat. Maybe the twin dilemma is the dual personalities raging inside the doctor, his new quote-unquote normal, and the homicidal man manic depressive. Maybe the twin dilemma refers to both Edgeworth and the doctor being time lords and needing to face Mestor. Maybe the twin dilemma refers to John Nathan Turner and Eric Sayward being at total opposite ends of the spectrum with the direction of the sixth doctor. I don't know, whatever. The set pieces and action scenes in the story were a total disappointment, though. 
Sometimes with Doctor Who stories, you can tell where they had to make sacrifices in order to justify something really expensive showing up in the story, such as a type of visual effect or a creature's design or set piece, etc. But here it's a mystery. Everything looked and felt really cheap. I mean, back to the, th the throne room, there's a man-sized frog suit just sitting in the background. I don't know why. For what reason? Maybe it was a real expensive frog suit? I don't know. With all that cynicism aside, it was definitely an ambitious journey to try and take the viewer on. I feel that Colin Baker really held his own with the totally different emotions he was forced to portray throughout the story. I've mentioned it before, but I'll keep repeating it, that Nicole Bryant and Colin Baker really have fantastic chemistry together, and even though they spent the majority of their time arguing, they really play off each other very well. Again, it was an ambitious idea trying to introduce the Sixth Doctor this way, but just not pulled off very well, which is completely shocking when you hear that Peter Moffat is behind this one. All I can guess is that perhaps Peter was butting heads with JNT throughout most of the production. It's hard to imagine going from stories such as Majin Undead and the Five Doctors to this one and not guessing that there's other factors involved. In later interviews, Peter Moffat himself describes this story as the worst serial he ever did. Script editor Eric Sayward felt the script was lousy to begin with, but started as a half-decent idea. As I mentioned in the intro, Anthony Stephen made very slow progress on this script, and left the show altogether when he became sick, leaving Eric Sayward to rewrite nearly the entire thing, which him and Moffat had already had huge problems with. In another reported source, Colin Baker himself thought that this story was his least favorite for many reasons, but among them was that he felt that the twins themselves just couldn't act. And he was right about that. They were pretty terrible. Very wooden. There were many recommendations sent to JNT for some excellent female twin actresses, but for some reason JNT felt that the part needed to be male. There's really no reason. According to Doctor Who magazine, there were three separate polls conducted in 1998, 2009, and 2014, all voting the twin dilemma as the worst Doctor Who television story ever. In another interview, Russell T. Davies cites this story as the beginning of the end of classic Doctor Who. At this point, it's probably not a big surprise to reveal that I give this story 0.5 stars out of 5. And on that magical note, my friends, it's time to leave the slime trail of the twin dilemma. Join me next time as we tackle Colin Baker's final story as the Sixth Doctor in The Ultimate Foal. Oh boy, I can't wait for that one. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for giving me some of your day. Leave a like, share this podcast, and leave a review wherever you get this podcast from. It really helps the algorithm spread it around and attract more listeners. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Bye.